All right, everybody, welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm your host, John O'Frew, and I'm sitting here this afternoon. We're sharing a cup of coffee with Ewan Campbell. G'day, Ewan. How are you going, John? Good, man. Good. Ewan, tell me, what is it about what you do right now that excites you? Because you've got a bit of a spring in your step. What's, what's giving you that spring? Results. Yeah. What, what, what we're seeing now and from where we've come from, it's pretty cool. I mean, we've had just the wettest, wettest, oh, I can't say few months. It's been the last six or seven months. I mean, we had 100 mils in the last two days. And even though the cows made a bloody mess because the ground's that fertile, um, now they look amazing. And, yeah, it's out of the box. It's stuff that um, you sort of dream of that you can get to this point without... um, spending huge amounts of money and for the listeners where are you based tell us about where you farm you in, in new zealand we farm in the back of waihi uh it's about 45 k's 50 k's north of tauranga um lovely rolling some steeper stuff um 250 acres is dad's place and we've got 200 acres of grazable land 50 acres of trees native bush cowries bits and pieces um and a rather large pond that's been covered in Canadian geese, which aren't so covered in Canadian geese anymore. They like our grass too. And you talk about your journey and results and start us right back at the beginning of what you would call the beginning of your journey. Where where did this all start? Look, my dad bought a farm, no, my dad bought a peat swamp in 1952. There wasn't a drain, a fence or nothing. So he made a farm. So when I came along in 64, we were, you know, still journeying on learning how things work. Didn't really take a lot of notice of um, what the traditional did. It was like you either worked, it worked, or you you didn't do it. Um, Dad won the National Field Days uh, Invention Awards for a side-mounted drain cleaner so that we could clean the drains and bits and pieces. So a lot of my growing up is like, get on and do it. And if it doesn't work, we'll start again. And um, lucky enough, my grandfather lived on the farm too, which was great. And he was an Irishman, carpenter, build, bridge builder, dairy, ex-dairy farmer. So like we had a huge range of uh, resources and a sense of skills. And yeah, it was do it yourself or don't, don't bother. When you said you did things and if they didn't work... More or less, you said you stopped doing it and did something different, or you know, reassessed. Was that, you know, New Zealand? I think there's kind of like a, a something that maybe a lot of, especially men inherit of like being scared to say no. We've, we've, you know, this doesn't work. Were you brought up differently, or tell us how does that work? Oh, it's interesting because like our farm at um, Tierra or Elsto was a little district I was in. We were right on the edge of some of the best dairy country um, around. Like, I mean, I'm only talking two Ks away. And you come off that and drop into a peat swamp. And I don't know. And all the guys that I went to school with, none of them had peat land or anything like that. So, like, it was all just about working out how it went as you went along. And, you, you know, I used to go around and look at these other guys' farms and go, wow, I wish I could do that. But we just carried on and kept learning. And as the peat consolidated and that we've got pretty good results and yeah mum and dad put a cow shed on when I left school and but 
it was always did it ourselves. When we built the cow shed, we broke in 250 heifers the first year, another 100 the following year. Um, yeah, in a few years, I went overseas and come back and um, share milk for them. Um, but I just got sick of the drains and the plowing and the cropping. And just as I was about to leave, I could start to see the traditional guys who'd had really good land were starting to lose it and they were starting to grow maize and go down down the gurgler really i went to a couple of seminars about growing maize and i go what, what are you guys doing why are you doing this you guys have got a better life now i'm out of here i can't be bothered doing this and yeah they've got trapped into it um and i really saw around that time between the late 80s and early 90s that we were sliding in production specifically the guys around the district were sliding in production um they were starting to use nitrogen and there was something not right and we had tried chicken manure and a few other things on the dairy farm but i just couldn't handle working 24 7 on the dairy farm so i just thought oh, bugger it i'll buy a dry stock farm and a better climate which why he does have but you know that was uh jumping out of the frying pan into the fire in a lot of ways because although it had a great climate the soil was absolutely shagged um you know even though we had two meter rainfall you know it, it only had an inch or two of topsoil on it and so those sort of skills that I'd learned on the peat farm about observation what are we going to do how are we going to fix this led to a whole lot more learning on the on the dry stock farm when I went to Waihee. What is it that you saw was there a point, because I'm just trying to get a feel for, I know I have an understanding of your knowledge being vast now, but back then, what was your understanding of soil health? Was it based on what you had seen from those dairy guys and thought, oh, that's brilliant? Or did you have an understanding of, of you know, what you would now call soil health back then? No, we saw things on the, on the peat farm, you know, like where we saw certain forms of silica, come out of the drains or we would dug holes to get clay out of and the grass grow and we'd observed a whole lot of that stuff and didn't really know what it meant. Um, when I got to Waihee, I immediately put three lots of test plots down because it's a great thing to have empty pockets. It sharpens the mind really hard. And it's like, you don't spend money on moron fertilizers if you haven't got any. So I did these three lots of test plots on different parts of the farm, all using, I think I used about eight different products. And I had an electronic uh, grass beater and I was checking out the growth and I'd check out the worm counts and all that. And it became really obviously to me straight away, well, superphosphate didn't do a bloody thing and potassium super, that didn't even do even worse. I was like, well, you're not going to do that. So I think the first year we used a mix of um, lime ash out of the Tiamatu Dairy Factory and chicken manure, which got us a reasonable result. And then... Um, Chap turned up at our neighbour's place, a guy called Peter Lester. A few of the older farmers would have heard of him. And he seemed to be making a bit of sense. And so I started to learn a bit of stuff from him. And I, I got to a certain point and going, mm, uh, I'm a bit buggered here. And I got to got invited to go to a Brookside Laboratories training course in Caddy Caddy, um, just down the road from us. And I jumped at it um, and got into it there. But I think that, and therefore I, I got access to the labs and I could start testing, measuring everything. And it was bloody great. I mean, who else, you know, it was, it was pretty good value for money. Anything I was sort of really interested in, I could send off to the lab and ask them, well, what do I test here for there? And 
there was all sorts of things. I did um, chemical residue tests and all sorts of things as I was observing stuff that was going on. But probably the biggest thing that changed my whole farming process on the farm in Waihi was that we were always trying to get the base saturation of calcium up and the magnesium and, and everybody, you know, most people now will understand the classical all brick process of 68, 70% calcium, so much 10, 12% magnesium, a couple percent potassium. But when you've got no money, you're looking for whatever you can. And uh, I spied a product from Glenbrook Steel Mill, which was um, basic slag. And it had 30% calcium. Um, I think it was 5 or 6% magnesium, um, quite a bit of iron, 1% phosphorus. And I thought, well, shit, this is a good buy. And I could get it landed at the farm at $25 a tonne. And I worked out it was about $100 worth of nutrient. Uh, and when I put that on the farm, that was the that was just like the whole place just changed instantaneously. It was just remarkable. We would had rat's tail, we had red clover. Um, and it just like, oh, this is amazing. And one of the things that I didn't sort of really take any notice of at the time is 15% silicon. So there was another crazy event that set me off on all sorts of tangents after that. I was down the farm one day after one of our, you know, overnight 150 mils of rain. And we had a fish bin there that I was feeding minerals out of. And in the bottom of the fish bin was a little bit of kelp that had been left behind. And, you know, this thing had got 150 mils of water in it. But in the bottom of that bin were these lines running exactly east-west made up of kelp. And they were 27 millimetres apart. And man, does that do your head in. Um, you're looking at it. You think all the mice have come out and sorted out their Olympic swimming pools with bloody do links and this stuff. And you're just going, what on earth created that? And it took me oh, probably about 12 months to find out the sequence of events that certain forms of silica react with the UV portion of the sun and create electricity. Once you stimulate that in paramagnetic material, you will form a linear effect. And the linear effect was actually from the iron that came from the um, steel, steel mill, which is the same as the iron off the West Coast beaches. And it stimulates it into forming into lines running east-west magnetically and it carries electricity. Well, that set off a million different things. And I was off, the, I think I nearly emptied Acres USA's book depository there for a while. Um, there was so much stuff there to learn. There's Davison Rawls, um, the electromagnetic blueprint, um, Phil Callaghan stuff on the paramagnetism. And you match that up with all bricks and then, then started looking, overlaying it with the biology and that. So that was the big kicker. That was the one that just blew me to pieces. Like, holy shit, what's going on? So It was exact east-west. Exactly. It's magnetic east-west. Wow. And a straight line. Oh, you're totally linear. Yep. <laughs> and had you had any idea of electromagnetism or any kind of... Because not many farmers think electrically. And I've seen you with your testers running around the countryside thinking, what is that man, you know, back in the day, what is that man doing with a bloody electrical tester in the soil? I hmm. know, oh, it's nuts. And... um. I think it's actually not far from at the office of Pyro, but like uh, it was actually a solar power guy here in Pyro. He um, 
I just said to him, I said, I, 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 there's something going on that I don't quite understand about this electrical stuff and that. And he just gave me a book. And, you know, like the, the original photovoltaic cells or like the solar panels, uh, phosphorus, silicon and boron. I'm going, uh, that's traditional agricultural shit. What's going on with that? So then I went to see, um, used to be called the Natia Gemstone Factory. And they had a UV box there that would just shine UV light on, on different forms of crystals. And that would actually illuminate and that would show you the reaction between the UV light and these silica particles. And I found certain forms of silica which reacted really well. And then we found out that we could do this with other natural products. Well, it is actually a natural phenomenon, full stop. It's just we're only working out how nature actually works properly. Um, yeah, I, I didn't invent it. I just merely found out how the freaking heck nature had sorted it out to start with. And no doubt still just scratching the surface of the real complexity at play. Um, so this this idea of bringing in the, is it, is it, in my head, I'm like, is polarity? Is it is it positive and negative? Is it got an element of like earthing and grounding? Like, what is what is this that you're doing with a, a electrical tester in the soil? What what does that tell you? Well, that, that's measuring the east west flow of the electrical current. And there's there's several things you can measure. You can measure the Gauss, which is the magnetic field of the Earth. And this changes a lot. And I mean, that was a big thing that I learned, how it really impacts as you get closer to the poles. So like in our soil in Waihe, if we're going all right, we get about 0.25 of a volt. But if I go to Invergiggle, um, I'll get up to 0.6 of a volt. Now, and this, when you start looking at it in the terms of season length production, uh, there's no accidents here. So like the higher the electromagnetics and the higher the electricity in the soil, the increase in growth over a period of time is phenomenal. And, and this is why like you see these world record pumpkins growing in Alaska. They're not growing in California. You know, they're driven by electromagnetic force. And so even if you look at the electrolytic corrosion or like corrosion of elements, and this is school C science stuff through electricity, um, at the top is potassium and then you've got calcium, magnesium, sodium. And so like all of these things, you can actually start to understand that plants are actually electrically driven, not solubly driven. Or there was, you know, like as I was starting to see, it was like nature is actually an electrical driver, not a soluble driver. And it makes a lot of sense when you get down to stuff of growing in cold season climates. Like I was in Wales back in my younger days when I was playing rugby over there um, and I was painting this pub and it was nine degrees springtime and the grass was growing there more than I'd ever seen growing in the Waikato at 20 degrees. Yeah, it made me so like, what's going on here? So yeah, you go to work, you turn around, the grass was another two inches higher. But as I found working up there with some universities and some people there that um, we got up to 1.5 volts charging through the soil in North Wales, which is, you put a light bulb in the ground. Wow. Isn't that crazy? And so what other, like other than, obviously you see a growth improvement, 
Is there any any other measurable things that you've noticed improve when the flow of electricity, because that's what you're getting at here really, isn't it? Is like the, the flow of electricity, when that's optimized or increased, or maybe it's like starting with what are the things that are inhibiting that or lowering the flow of energy, you get better growth. Is there anything else that's obvious that stands out for you when you start to improve that? If you, if you go and get into the biological side of it, you know, like the stimulation of the bio biology in the store was phenomenal with more electricity. And there's lots of studies to show that where they've stimulated, you know, where they've had uh, waste materials and they put fungal species in them and they've stimulated with the electricity, they've increased the biological activity by up to 800%. So, and that's, that's really what we're seeing now is that once you get the soil cleaned up, like bring the right fungal species into it and you stimulate, they clean up a lot of the mess and the residues in the past history. Um, then we bring in the cyanobacteria, which is what comes from the ocean. And those guys, uh, they're phenomenal because they don't require temperature to grow. It's like if you look at the poles in the ocean, you know, come springtime when the, the sea melts, you know, the ice melts, there's a phenomenal boom of life, which then, you know, cyanobacteria, then it goes to krill and, and herrings and whatever, it flows on right through. Well, it, you know, the water temperature is only a couple of degrees. It's bloody freezing. And yet this huge uh, increase in production, and that's what we're seeing now, is that when you can stimulate those soil cyanobacteria in the soil, they're the ones that lay down all the carbon and they're the ones that bring all the nitrogen for the following year. And they do an amazing job. I mean, shit, it's awesome to watch it grow. Like you walk across the paddocks at home now and we'll have, if it wasn't so bloody wet, but normally at this time of the year, we'll start to see about 15 to 20 mils of worm castings across the whole farm. And that's the worms eating the cyanobacteria and bring it back to the surface, all for next year's production. Um, so, you know, like there's a whole range of the electric. And then what the cyanobacteria do is turn the minerals into what you call mineral salts or tissue salts. There's 12 of them um, required in any cell production. And when you, you can actually move the anions, like the phosphorus and the sulfurs, through these salts, where otherwise you're using, waiting for soluble fertilizer to do it. So, like phosphorus is an anion, and usually you're losing it through. Um, water soluble nutrition and um but now if you look at it that phosphorus can come in magnesium phosphate potassium so phosphate and sodium phosphate and calcium phosphate and all of those are movable through electrical current well now you can start to really get mineral density into the plant and it doesn't need temperature so what do you think are some of the effects on like our traditional obsession with superphosphate does that mess with the electrical behavior sure it does um biggest problem with super is, is although it doesn't stay at a low ph for long when it drops on the soil there's two things that happen one of them the high aluminium which is hydrated normally it's in a hydroxide form it turns into free aluminium so now we've got problems because that'll kill all the biology and the other problem is the silicon, which is in a hydroxide form, it'll form, go to SiO2, which is glass. 
And so straight away, you've got no available silicon. So you've got, you've knocked out your silicon, you've brought aluminium into it. And the other part that you'll actually melt the um, iron that creates the particles that allows the electrical current to run. So you make ferrum sulfate or FES, and then that makes a pan in your soil. So you completely blow your electrical system to pieces. Why have I not heard about this electricity and agriculture thing? Like it, and I'm sure I'm not the only one here. I mean, we're all a bit weird in the soil game, but like, this is this really out there stuff, or like? Well, not, not to me. I mean, the, the thing is, is that once I started digging, I could find a huge amount of evidence of the effect of electricity, electromagnetism, and all the other stuff. But the part that we discovered was how we could actually stimulate it in the soil in the ongoing effect. I mean, that was that's just my claim to fame, I suppose, um, that we understood the different forms of silica and the type that would actually create the electricity and then the ongoing effect. But, I mean, along the way, it's been a hell of a journey in the sense of when you turn the electricity on, it's like an amplifier. And whatever you've got, you're going to amplify it. And that means it's good, bad, or bloody horrible. So, you know, like we've gone through the scenario, what happens when you put in uh, an amplifier in aluminium toxic soils? And this is, you'll see it like uh, with Horatium and that sort of, those sorts of plants. They're all aluminium plants, aluminium loving plants. So you, you've discovered what you've discovered. It's It's like... You know, like it's you've been watching it, you've been doing, applying these different forms of, of things to enhance the soil's biological and more importantly, in this case, electrical function, and you're seeing results. And then all of a sudden, you had people knocking on your door saying you were providing misleading information or unscientific information. I mean, what what's for those of you that are listening, you might be thinking, what the heck's going on? Do you want to talk us through you and what happened when you were? approached by the New Zealand Commerce Commission? Well, I guess the thing that happened with me is like, um, I'd had dealings with other bureaucrats before about getting funding or trying to get funding to do work. And they would take my information and then they'd go, no, we're not going to do it. And it was pretty frustrating because we were cutting edge sort of stuff. And what I was finding out is they just wanted your information to see what you were up to. And like the Commerce Commission comes knocking on my door and I wrote back to them and said, look, I haven't had a complaint. I haven't had a farmer that's complained to me about what's going on or their results. And so can you please, you know, and your literature's pretty erroneous and full of lies. And so I just dealt with them that way. And then um, they sent this, uh, one of the guys out acting as an avocado grower undercover. <laughs> Super snoop. You're not kidding me. This is not. No, a... I'm not kidding. It was hilarious. Didn't know anything about nothing. And um, it was all driven by the third companies. I mean, honestly, the Commerce Commission say they need five complaints before they'll launch any investigation, and they had none. So, you know, and it was just our business was growing, and it was bloody, um, you know, it was just, it was killing them. And so they decided that they'd come and get me. So you were you had found a, a kind of a, you discovered and created a product that was natural, that was getting results. Farmers, as well as yourself, were using it. And I'm guessing not just a handful of farmers. There was a, a lot of people saying that this 
method works and you're being told it's unscientific what was that like man yeah it's pretty difficult that you're standing in front of someone like a judge that's got no understanding whatsoever on the planet and an expert witness knows nothing about electricity and never even went to any of our farms and did no investigation you sort of go how the hell does this work how can they bring a case to court where none of these factors have actually been put in place and um yeah and that's why i went on to learn the law so much afterwards to try and understand how that part worked which i'm pretty pleased that i've done now but and you know it wasn't until 60 minutes came along afterwards that everyone else got a view of what the hell was going on it's really interesting you know there's a lot more stuff coming out about this electro culture now um nexus has just done a really good article on it um last issue is this um, the same kind of electro culture I've just been sent an article this week, actually, on just backyard applications in the veggie garden where people are running um, copper wire up into the air and yep. seeing, like, huge fruit and pumpkins, like, triple the size of previous years without the simple little electrode thing. Um, is this the same sort of thing? Yeah, it's just, it's it's inducing a current for those plants to grow. I mean... And it's really simple to actually understand that process because you can get a voltmeter and just set it at a low um, to three decimal points and take it out to deciduous trees. You'll see no current going up in the wintertime. But just before the leaves or the bud break, all of a sudden the, the switch goes on and you'll see this current start to go up the tree. And you know damn well that everything's an electrically driven process. You know, how the hell does water get to the top of a 300 foot redwood tree? without a bit of uh, mechanical pumping from electricity. And what about uh, the effect of, like we live in a pretty electrical intense world where, you know, power lines, uh, cell phone towers, does this, all of this kind of have an effect on these natural cycles, do you think, Ewan? Yeah, well, they do. Um, in the sense that whatever we do on the farm, we actually have to block those um, vagrant energies coming off those power systems into the farm because it can upset the whole system. And I mean, we can sort out the electrical side of it and then the farm won't go too good. And I'll start looking around for where the shit's coming from. Um, and, you know, like it, it's, you got to look at nature's actually mirrored a lot of what we do in the office. I mean, it, one of the big things that happened at home was that I had part of the farm where I was just like, God, it looks like it's been sprayed all the time. And I knew the farm had been heavily sprayed before I bought it. And so I went to Brookside and I got a 60 chemical test. They went and tested 60 common or highly used chemicals and they could find nothing. But the trees that I was planting there, like oak trees, they looked like they'd been sprayed with a hormone spray. They just, you know how the old thistle turns over like that? Yeah, well, the oak trees did exactly the same. And it wasn't until I came across this homeopath, um, naturopath, John Godwin, and he could test the frequency. And so what we were finding is that the chemicals that go in the soil are just like putting an imprint into your computer chip in your computer. Like it's a silicon chip, your soil is a silicon chip, and it retains a memory. And every time that we wound up the electricity, we amplified what was already there and so even though we had no residues we looked like we were actually had chemicalized trees and all sorts of weird things were going on 
Um, so there were, you know, like the nature was expressed by amplifying what was happening. The thing where you were, you know, you had to deal with what you had to deal with when the Commerce Commission came along, that's all dealt with now. Mm. You're you're out there and you're you're you know traveling around New Zealand sharing your journey with farmers. You've written a book. You've written multiple books, and we'll, we'll talk just, about those. Just two at the moment, Johnny. Just two. That's still multiple, <laughs> um, and that takes something, I bet. And and so, what are you feeling now? Are you back on track? Are you beyond where you thought you'd be? Have you caught up with you know a lot of those people? Where because I'm guessing you were out of were you out of business for a little bit with all of that going on. Well, we never real no, we never completely got shut down. But like I did retract a lot in the sense of wanting to know more and where my time was spent. I mean, I, I spent shit. I can't I can't even comprehend how much time I've spent learning the law. Um, one of the things the courts did teach me was, and I was trying to do that at the time, was I was doing a lot of monitoring and I was trying to actually put facts and figures together to show how certain things the relationships of things worked and how they carried on. And, you know, like I didn't, I just didn't get to that point because we got, I was trying to build databases and all that before all of these things were freely available around the country. So, um, you know, like I, I stepped back from the soil thing and we were just plugging along, but, you know, it's the last, I think when I finally cracked the issue about the aluminium toxicity and the different forms of silica to use to um, get rid of that and understanding the rest of the biological stuff and the trace elements, that's when I decided, right, it's time to put put back down again because I don't feel threatened by the system anymore um, because I understand how it works. And so now I can go back to work. And And now you're back at work and it sounds like you've got a lot of information of things that we're seeing farmers getting a lot of pressure for like water quality carbon's a big you know buzzword at the moment and of course farmers are getting a bad rap but you're almost saying you're seeing the opposite yeah well i think that's the thing about what i've learned is that you know the brilliant thing about being able to work with brookside laboratories who doesn't sell fertilizer or anything they would just they just do your testing and over time you actually got to um, work out what was the most beneficial thing that you could extract from me. If I give you this, what what am I going to learn from it? And what we learned was that there's a whole lot of information that's never been expressed or exposed to farmers. Like one of the most um, tests that we use is a total test where we actually do a chemical melt on the farm along with the available test. And man, does that show up a heap of stuff. You know, like farmers that have got, you know, 10, 12 tonnes of phosphorus per hectare, and you only need a couple. Um, and and it really what it was is you could see what was missing or what the limiting factors were. And so, you know, you get to see the different types of soil around the country and express the, what's going on. And then you can, it's really easy to make decisions then because you're actually looking at limiting factors, not at what I need to sell you. You're going, ah, flip. Oh, you got an aluminium problem. Oh, you got no biology. Oh, you've got this, or you know, it all shows up really quickly. If farmers had had those total tests available for a long time, they would have been a lot more savvy about what products they would have used and how they would have done stuff. 
Um, but the soil testing regimes of traditions in this country have been, especially from the bigger companies, is what I would call close to appalling and bloody near useless. Um, you can't make good decisions. And there's other companies that are doing some really good stuff now too. They're starting to learn that bloody hell, you know, this Olsen P and a few other things and a pH test on this waste of time, as you would have well known. What's, it's, it's a shock when you realize that this thing I've been basing a lot of the big financial decisions about my farm is not the whole picture. No, well, I guess that's one of the things that I'm saying. It's like, it's quite good to have empty pockets for a while, Johnny, because it sharpens the mind. And um, yeah, and it, I know if you put it out there, the answers usually arise, you know, like, um, and they do. And, and you've got to be completely open to it. The, the information can come from anywhere. And, you know, you can learn from a fool. Yeah. And we're all a bunch of fools. So we've got a good starting point. <laughs> <laughs> And so what drove you to write books, Ewan? Because, you know, this discussion so far, we've been talking about farming and agriculture, and you're a farmer, but you've got all these things that, like, most farmers, I mean, a lot of farmers certainly do a bit of writing, but what compelled you to write some books? Uh, the, the soil book, The Eco Farmer's Discovery, like I wrote that just out of clients going, well, why don't you write it down? And I did learn something a long time ago from my daughter, actually, is when we first started in business and the office was right next to her room and she got sick and tired of me talking to people all night and so she couldn't get to sleep or it was distracting while she was reading her Harry Potter books. So um, I said, when I wrote a manual at that stage, then the phone stopped going. And I realized, oh, crikey, this is a good way of actually um, spreading information, you know, without having to talk about it all again and again and again. You, you're a bit like one of those, you know, toys with a string out of the back. You pull back and blah, 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 blah. You get sick of it after a while. Um, and so, yeah, I just decided, well, I'd best write a book and um, get it out there and, and show people what we've discovered. And the other thing about a book too is like, you can always put lots of information and references and that sort of thing. So if people can find out if you're for real or not, they can go off and check it out themselves. Um, so no, I enjoyed writing that book, but yeah, the second one was a bit of a, yeah, head screw. Mm, yeah, maybe we, and people can go and check out your books on the website. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, if they want to see what happened back with the commerce commission and go, who is the government.com or, the books are available at EcoFarm ATRR. Um, and there's lots of other stuff that we're doing and showing people how to do stuff and really have fun with farming. And I think that's the biggest thing is that, you know, like I just love being a farmer. And, you know, it's really frustrating. It was, that was really frustrating is that here we were, we had produced amazing quality products. We'd won National Food Awards. We were marketing internationally. And we were shut down by a bureaucratic organization. And yet all I could see was like, this is a lot of fun. People really enjoy our food. They enjoy our environment and the whole process. But because somebody further up the chain doesn't like you, let's stop it. And, um, you know, across the country at the moment, you know, you generally see farmers are under the pump, aren't they? And I love it when I can go back to our clients and they've got a grin from ear to ear. Because their farm's going well, um, 
and some of the things that we've implemented, like the water testing can, uh, stuff and the whole process with the carbon and all that, and the people that turn up, and everyone's usually dreading a bloody visit from the dairy company now because they're going to shut you down and that. And they drop these bloody reports on the table and go, oh, we did the water testing of our here and we've done this here and we're going to do effluent block there. And it shows what the water quality is and all that sort of stuff. Everyone just, that's amazing. And they bugger off and leave them alone. So, but with that, I will say with that, a lot of farmers don't want to test because they actually know how bad it is from the practices they've done. But the cool thing about it is there is a mechanism. If it's that bad at the moment, at least you can fix it. It, it doesn't have to be that way forever. We have, but we have to stop this crap. I mean, you were at um, the Organic Dairy and Pasture Group Conference in what at Lincoln? Yep. And <clears throat> you heard the guys talk about the nitrates in the water and the colorectal cancer. Well, at that stage, I think Ashburton was at uh, 11 parts per million of nitrate and they're now running at 22. That's only three years. I mean, somewhere along the line, we've got to take some responsibility for what's going on. Um, and, you know, the guy said, um, he's a leading health um, man about the cancers and that in Christchurch. And he said, once it gets over five parts per million, our increase in the opportunity of getting colorectal cancer just starts ramping up further and further. So, you know, for our own health, our own families, we've got to do something about this. What's your thoughts on this idea that people say, oh, look, this natural thing's great, but, you know, I can't afford it? No, it's a load of rubbish. It's absolute bollocks. I mean, the results that we achieve um, and the cost savings in the first year is just phenomenal. It's just bonkers what they're talking about. Um, yeah, and I, you know, and I guess that's the thing about all this process about testing and measuring is that I can be held accountable for my own methods. You know, and that's, I don't mind doing that. If you follow a procedure, we did GPS testing, do this, that, and the other thing. And if it's not working, well, I'll be the first one there to go, well, why isn't it working? And um, that's the only reason I've learned so much is that I've taken the bull by the horns when things don't work, I'll take responsibility to find out. And I just look at it as a magic or opportunity going, well, how the hell did that work? And why isn't that working? And yeah, it's, it's a cool place to be when you start to crack it. And especially with people that, trust you after a while they go holy shit this guy's actually got our um interest at heart to to fix it and i know what it was like to have a shit farm and i had a lot of people back me so you know whether that was stock agents or people that helped me learn about sales for my marketing our beef or whatever um i had people that just helped me because they thought we're going the right direction um and I feel the same way now, is that if somebody's sticking their hand up, yeah, shit, I'll be there and with bells on top. Man, and you said uh, you see that something not working as an opportunity. And what I didn't hear a single ounce of was you taking it personally like it's something, like some kind of, you know, human beings do this thing where it's like, I'm going to talk about something and then something happens that we weren't expecting, and we we try and avoid it being like a something about us, like where to blame or. But there's nothing wrong with having, you know. No, no, and I think that's the probably you know the biggest thing that we all we all have been battled out of taking responsibility for our own actions, 
um, and when you do take responsibilities, yeah, some people go, oh, you did this wrong and you did that wrong, but like you got to be comfortable in your own soul. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, shit, I've done some crazy shit. There's no doubt about it. I've you know written about it and done all. I've done some really crazy shit, but only I feel like the answers need to be coming forward, and we need to do this stuff. Not I'm I'm certainly not stopping doing crazy shit either, but you know that's cool. <laughs> Yeah, I think if anything, mate, we might need a bit more crazy. Mm. What are some of the things that you're seeing? So you just for the for the listeners, so so you and you know, obviously you've been farming and then you've discovered the stuff and you're going and sharing it with all these other farmers. Is there some themes you're seeing out there on the road chatting with farmers? Like are, are there some trends? Yeah, well, well, we're lucky. And and um you've met Paul and my partner and we're, we're really lucky because we never cold called anyone. Like we only go to people that bring us up or get in touch with us. Can you come and see us? And in that regard, I see some flipping phenomenally awesome farmers that are doing some really cool things that are just going, we like what you're doing. You come and see us. We're not worried about what anyone else thinks. And in that regard, those guys are setting a platform for the next group that come in behind that. Um, and this is having the, the benefit of what happened when the first time that um, I started the business and understanding how this whole process goes is that once you get a footprint on the floor and a few people start asking questions, then all of a sudden they become interested and excited too that they can do this stuff. People don't like to be bullied into stuff they like to have the carrot out in front of them um some of them seem a bit slower than others i mean it's you know it bewilders me at times even at our own farm um it's like we've got no thistles you know and we'll have you can see the fence it's the worst boundary fence in the world but it actually keeps california thistles on the other side of the fence yeah but the neighbour hasn't come and seen me, you know, and, and one of the other neighbours, he was funny. He comes screaming up the road and dad was at, down at the gate and um, he pulled up and he said, he's done it again. And dad said, what? He said, he took the worst farm, worst weedy farm in Waihe and turned it into amazing and he didn't use one spray and he's done it again. And he turned around and he fucked off again. And that was it. And um, he looks over the fence and he's still throwing nitrogen on and driving around and spraying and all this stuff. I think, oh, well, sooner or later, maybe you'll wake up. But um, So you weren't worried at all about his Californian thistles creeping over your side? You didn't have to go and knock on his door? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> we cool all know one no, of those guys. Yeah, it's cool to have no weeds, especially when you don't have dirt. I really wound him up, though. I went to the... I saw him in the BP, we we're having a coffee. And he said, oh, you bastard, you got no weeds. And I said, oh, Floppy, I'll tell you something. And I go, I said, I get up at midnight and go around for two hours every night and cut them all just to piss you off. <laughs> just to make him feel better. <laughs> He's like, get out of here, you bird. <laughs> but you don't lose any sleep and you're not out there spraying and you've seen weeds, what, just disappear. Look, it's it's... The weeds have a reason. I mean, I see it with the cropping guys and everything like that. Like most weeds, um, prickles have silica, want silica, right? Anything with prickles wants silica. Then you got the other weeds, the willow weeds and the fat hen and all that. They're all just producing nightshades. They're all carbon creators. 
And they'll only turn up when the carbon's low. And so I see this with cropping guys all the time is that they'll spray, therefore shut their biological function of the soil down and the trash then oxidizes going out into the atmosphere. But if they cultivate with the right approach and the right biology and they turn that trash into carbon, the weeds go, no, we don't need to grow. Carbon level's high enough. It's all good. And, you know, we've got one client <laughs> and um, just out of Geraldine and, and he told me, he put the first crop in, he told me what he did. And I said, I'd come down there with a hammer and smash his toes in if he didn't bloody stop using chemicals. Well, by the third one, he actually listened. And um, I think it's on the website. He's got a, he's got uh, chow and phacelia planted in January. The phacelia is about six foot four and the chow is about five foot to his shoulder. And there's not a weed in the whole crop. I'm going, now that's what we want to see. And when you say the third one, you're not meeting toes, I hope. No, no. Well, that was the third crop because he told me what he did at the second one. I was going to break his knees. <laughs> then he finally listened. And then he goes, yeah, I get it now. Okay. <laughs> that must be something else, just seeing people see for, the, for themselves. Mm, it's hard work, though. You know, to get them off the, the drip, it's just a bit like a drug dealer, you know. it's uh, And you would know yourself. It's hard work to go, oh, my crop's going to fail if I don't spray or I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And, you know, we get it in the kiwi fruit and cherries and whatever else is they seem to think that they've got to spray with copper, otherwise the trees will get fungi. And you, know, uh, you actually create the issue when you kill all the beneficial fungi. But, you know, how long that's going to take to come around? Um I think we saw it, I don't know if you were at the conference this year where you spoke um, at the ODPG again, the, um, where they said about, you know, using scanners to look at food quality and how that will probably solve all the problems about um, certification and that. And I do believe that that's probably going to be the answer. When, when mum can go to the supermarket and run the scanner over the food and go, that's really good shit, and it's got no chemical residues in it, um, all of a sudden the consumer's in control again. And as farmers, you want to be right at their doorstep. Um, I had an experience, a guy I went to school with, he was involved in fruit sorting with uh, infrared technology and working in bricks. And I was, when they first cracked it, um, they were taking fruit to the supermarket and they would label it differently. And after four weeks there was about a 70% increase in the sales of the high bricks fruit that they'd sorted. And when they went back to the supermarket and they go, well, okay, well, what do you, what are we, what's it worth to pay for you to pay for more for these apples? And they said, nothing. They weren't interested in actually the quality. So the supermarket was the devil in the middle. who was just interested in the money. So, and the, you know, consumer paid, but if they can, you can walk in, with your scanner or go down the market and the food's all better down the market. Well, Mr. Supermarket won't be making as much money. So, you know, these are the benefits that are coming with technology, I guess. And here's hoping it's just a temporary thing. Like it would certainly open a lot of consumers eyes because I, like many people, I'm sure before I was, you know, introduced to and actually involved with the industry of uh, growing crops for food for for you know even vegetable production before that i just thought that you know broccoli was broccoli and 
cabbage was cabbage and oh yep no that looks good what's the price per kilo yep sweet and then i started being responsible for the agronomy of these things in the conventional sense and all of a sudden wow okay this is not just a case of a broccoli being a broccoli and i can see something like this being fantastic for the consumer for the consumer but also extremely disruptive to the whole system because all of a sudden this commodity mindset of yield overall is going to be threatened and and i just just as i'm here with you speculating about this tool imagine the day where we don't need it where we can oh, just trust that totally I, I agree with you fully don't know it's a it's a transition mechanism that we can actually do for this process and it's um yeah, let's see where it goes to. I mean, uh, food quality's king, environment's king. Stop all this bullshitting. I mean, God, cow's bad for the environment. And yet you go to Auckland to get on the aeroplane, you get stuck in traffic from seven o'clock in the morning again. Whatever, you know, like, God, come on. So, but, you know, the tools are here. We have those tools to actually make a difference. And the interesting thing now is that we are seeing in our business, especially, you know, garden food and things like that. There are so many people that are really interested in their food. And, you know, with the technology we have now, we didn't have Facebook and all this other stuff, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Now, God, you can be talking to your customers and that sort of thing. Buddy, Paul is on it all the time, buddy, sending out information. And it's amazing what comes back. It's crazy. I mean, I just don't have time to muck around with it. But, yeah, it's incredible what you can do. Absolutely. I think what you're yes. alluding to here is that farmers have a lot of power. Well, it, it's crazy. I mean, like to give you an instance, I did one video, which I didn't even put myself in it. And I just videoed this patch of trees I cut down where the thistles grew. And I thought, don't spray your thistles. It'll sort itself out. I think I had 30,000 hits on it. I was one of those hits, mate. I oh. saw that. It was nuts. It was just the simple, you know, don't spray your thistles. It was like, no. <laughs> I I'm pretty happy with where I came from in regards to the agricultural side of things. I just opened the, my mind up to going, whatever works, works, and I need to know how this works. And, I, you know, like I'm a great believer in putting the information out there. You'll get it come back. It was like I, I can still remember a day sitting on this tree stump looking out over this farm that I bought in my hair was the most beautiful view. It's an amazing place to live and we couldn't grow any grass. And I just said, well, I have to have, know how this works. And I didn't put any conditions or anything else. And it was like the bloody Niagara Falls started pouring in regarding all sorts of different stuff. And I was just open enough to read about it. And And I can genuinely say like one year's fertilizer from the traditional fertilizer would have paid for all the travel I did and all the other bits and pieces in the learning of what I've learned is back in the first 10 years of it. So by stopping just what other people are telling you what to do and getting off my ass and going around this country and around the world allowed me to see so much more. And I was lucky that, you know, like I had a history of farming in in Wales for a year which was great when I was playing rugby up there and um, because I was going back there regularly because I was married to a Welsh lady I got to see a lot of the agriculture and, and I saw a lot of what was going on in all different aspects of the whole process I saw what happened to Wales after Chernobyl the effect it had there on their agriculture um, it was a massive amount of, I suppose I had a great opportunity to see all different things 
And I say to people, you know, like they're going, oh, yeah, we've heard it all before. And I say, look, the cheapest thing that you could possibly do is go down to Air New Zealand and buy yourself a ticket and come and have a look. It's, it's the easiest thing to do. It's like you see it with your field days and things like that. Once people get out of their comfort zone and find out there's a whole lot of other really cool people that are mad as well, then all of a sudden you, you've, you're in a different group and it's no longer how many kilograms a hectare did you do? It's like, well, how much fun did you have and how much money you made? I mean, that, and that's amazing to me too, is how back in the day when I was milking cows, it was profit per hectare. When do you talk, hear dairy farmers talking about profit per hectare? Kilograms is king, mate. <laughs> I've seen guys that are doing 700 kilograms a hectare making more than someone doing 2,000. Do you like work and do you like wrecking the environment? And do you like being really mad and, you know, stressing out your life and the family? And it's no wonder farmers have got caught up so much. It's like we've got to stop looking at what people are telling us and taking more an intuitive approach and, and being, you know, get educated too. Not, not by the universities, by the way. It's kind of like if something's if something's if something's having you get upset, it's probably worth looking into, eh? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, there's nothing like a bit of navel gazing, isn't there? And I love what you said. Like most people, first thing they think is like education, right? Well, you know, let's go and study. But actually, back to technology and the age of information, it's there is so much information available just at our fingertips. And you said it so well as like, you've got to be open to it. Because mm. what's it like? And I'm sure you've seen someone, we all have, where there's like a solution right in plain sight and they can't see it. Oh, look, I see it all the time. And how they get bullied by other people or they listen to outside influence. And that's their choice, obviously. And that, I mean, that's the thing about this whole process. It's all free choice. Um, we do what we want to do when we want to do it. Well, we'd like to, um, and that's hence why I learned so much about the law, <laughs> so we can. <laughs> oh, you and mate, it's been a bloody pleasure chatting to you, and I'm sure you know we've only just scratched the surface. Uh, I'd love to come to your farm in Waihee one day. I haven't been to your place. So I'm really looking forward to that day. And um, it's been fun, which I think is pretty important. Uh, it's been great, Jono. And um, yeah, it'd be interesting how it's responded to. But yeah, we, we've learned a lot and we've had a lot of pain, but we are in a pace of, you know, you can enjoy it. And sometimes we just have to find out really what we do want. And there's nothing wrong with a bit of pain, right? At the time it hurts, but, you know, from pain there becomes gain. I would almost say it's vital. Thanks very much, Ewan. Cheers, Jono.